0: This is The Registry Podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Real Perspectives Podcast, where we dive deep into the insights and stories shaping the real estate and tech industries. I'm your host, Vladimir Bosanets, co-founder and publisher of The Registry. Today, we have a very special guest, Hussein Sanara, the CEO of FundRebel, a game-changing platform in the world of financial technology Specifically tailored to revolutionize how we approach funding in the real estate sector, Hussein has been making waves with his innovative approaches to solving complex financial challenges. And today, he's here to share his journey, the vision behind Fund Rebel, and how technology is redefining the landscape of real estate financing. So, without further ado, let's welcome Hussein Sonara to the Real Perspectives podcast. Hussein, thank you for joining us. Hey, Hussein. Good afternoon. How's it going? glad how are you today i'm doing well where do we find you where are you today uh today you find me in south florida uh i'm in hollywood beach okay wonderful wonderful um so hussein um as a kind of a way of introduction i'd love to ask our you know guests to tell us a little bit about themselves kind of you know what your background in the industry is you know how you got to where you are today um, so I'll give you this uh, you know same opportunity to tell us a little bit about you and uh, your your company.
1: Wonderful um, so my name is Hussein Sonara uh, I've been in the real estate industry for now going on to my 22nd year and uh, in the course of that 22 years in the business I have focused the majority of my career um, into development as a broader, definition topic. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that real estate development, people think of it who maybe are not involved in the industry. And they think that that's, you know, buying building sort of thing, just sort of one channel of uh, approach to the industry. But for me, it's been a, a broader journey and a, a broader scale of, you um, let's just call it uh, skill sets that have to be honed and attained over time in order to understand the entire ecosystem. Development to me represents, and has always represented all of the pieces to the puzzle. So you have finance, you have management, you have execution, you have human relations, uh, you have corporate relations, you have uh, debt, you have equity, you have municipal and governmental engagement, and all of that um, fills the entire spectrum of what can make a successful real estate investment and development. So most of my career has been spent amidst all of that. And um, I have had the opportunity over that period of time to uh, be principal in a number of different uh, real estate partnerships, mainly focused in the New York City market and the South Florida market. The majority of my career has been spent in New York City, mainly Manhattan. Uh, I spent eight years uh, in the C-suite of a large uh family office in New York City that had at its peak about 7 million square feet of commercial office. Uh, And we did a a good piece of residential development as well, both in New York and in South Florida. And uh, that is basically what has brought me to uh, the position that I'm in today is one of the co-founders of a platform called Fund Rebel. And Fund Rebel is a Regulation A uh, qualified offering platform that is amidst the Um, crowdfunding uh, industry vertical, Um, although we don't necessarily define ourselves solely as a crowdfunded animal or crowdfunded platform. And uh, that's a little bit about me and a little bit about the background of where I've come from and and what brought me to here today.
0: Great. Yeah. And so in your description of FundRebel, you mentioned this Regulation A as kind of a uh, you know a, a a you know distinctive feature, I guess, of your of your organization. Tell us a bit about that. like why why is that important? and maybe this is more for sort of folks who don't know. but just a little bit of a you know primer on why why that is significant. So
1: reggae is a product of the Jobs Act, which was initially enacted in the Obama administration. And the idea behind it coming out of the Great Recession was to create an incentivization for people to be able to raise money and start companies and operate companies and be able to access public markets, perhaps in a way that uh, before that was not really a reality. Um, As time has evolved, the limits have been raised and the amount of capital that you're able to raise through that uh, organizational structure has increased. Um, But real estate kind of was a little bit of a lagger uh, in terms of being able to really take advantage of what that framework was there to provide. Um, certainly, we're not the first people to do this type of platform, but we recognized that uh, this this particular type of regulatory framework is very useful, mainly because it allows the integration of accredited and non-accredited investors. So in a normal regulation, D real estate fund, for example, these are all accredited investors. And you know, generally speaking, you want large buckets of capital and everybody wants to promote as much capital as they possibly can. That's a big underpinning of the entire game. But the reality real estate is real estate is an industry that's for everybody. And one thing that we recognize is that despite the fact that it is an industry for everybody, economic factors typically preclude the average person from being able to participate. Um, From our perspective, being uh, people with veteran status in the industry and, and understanding what it takes to raise capital and what it takes to put deals together of any scale or size. Um, We recognize that this dimension is an open highway for the ability, A, to reach people that ordinarily would not have any access or exposure to this sort of thing. Uh, B, allow us the opportunity to sort of remove some of the opaqueness, let's say, of what surrounds this industry, because this is not an industry that the average person can go to school, learn about. You can certainly go to wonderful programs at NYU and Wharton and all of these places, and you can learn the theory and the principle and the philosophy, and you can learn what's written in books. But the yeah. truth of the matter is, is that this is an industry that is trial by fire industry. And it is an industry where you must do in order to learn. And typically that's a very expensive undertaking in order to do in this industry. So we recognized that there was an opportunity both in being able to reach the average person Um, aggregate capital from average people. But the trade-off is not just we're going to aggregate capital from people and we're going to go use it and do what we want. We want to be able to expose dimensions of this business that are cloistered behind closed doors and boardroom doors and big, huge, slow-moving organizations and show people that again, this is an industry for everybody. And we can teach you as well as deploy your capital in a meaningful way that can yield a return, maybe educate you so that you can move on and go and do your own type of business and your own interests and investments in real estate, and put ourselves all collectively in a position to succeed together. So that is a um, philosophically where we come from on the creation of the platform. But the reality is, is that we think that um, all industry all aspirational industry in the future, is going to have to have a dimension of public participation. Now, you know the average response to that is we do, it's called the stock market. And yes, that's certainly true. You can buy stocks and companies that you believe in, you can read quarterly reports, you can listen to earnings calls and, and you know, CEO miss- uh, messages and missives, but you're never really going to have the opportunity to understand more in depth how the proverbial sausage is made. And right. we think that that part of what we're doing and that part of what reggae has the potential to offer um, is something that we're very interested in because we think that all aspirational businesses in the world that we live in um, given the landscapes without it becoming a political discussion the landscapes are tenuous and there are plenty of people out there perhaps more people out there that truly believe that there's not going to be an opportunity ever for them young people especially which is certainly damaging to the psyche of what future generations have to hold and what they can, what future generations can give to society. So we want what we do. Of course, it's a money-making operation. We are here to, to create revenue and and generate profits for ourselves, for our shareholders, for shareholders first and ourselves after. But the fact of the matter is, is that if we can create a platform, maintain a platform and grow a platform that allows us to a fulfill that mission of connecting as many people as possible to what we call high octane real estate, um, and be in this space, as it continues to grow and scale, generally speaking, across more aspirational industry segments, we think that our platform can be one that can service more than just real estate, eventually, we are all real estate people. So real estate is what we know. And that's what we're going to stick to, because that's what we we know. But the thesis can work for much more than just real estate. And uh, we think that going forward, again, in the future, this is going to be a road that every company and every industry is going to have to travel one way or the other. So that's a large reason why.
0: I think over the last sort of, you know, decade or so, there's been a number of kind of crowdfunding platforms that have popped up. And I am curious in, in sort of how you look at yourselves and how you guys define that space, you know, how do, how do you stand out in that, in that crowd?
1: So, when you look at um, a lot of the successful crowdfunding platforms, uh, and certainly this is, you know, we have nothing but respect for every other competitor in the space. Anybody that tries to undertake and do something like this, this is not for the faint of heart. This is not for people that don't have patience or the ability to navigate, you know, wide swaths of minefields and and a lot of headwinds. Doing something new always requires that. Um, We've now been in business for two years, and um, we are just beginning to sort of turn the first of a series of corners that will bring us potentially into where we want to end up. But one of the main uh, focus points that we have and what we think makes us different is that many other real estate um, crowdfunded platforms have sort of, and without, I'm certainly not naming any names and I'm not trying to paint everybody with the same brush, but it seems as though everybody has gotten very good at selling the dream of passive income in real estate. And there's no real definition behind that. It's just like invest in real estate, make passive income. Certainly for anybody that's ever owned a a second home or a triplex or, you know, four family or large apartment building or anything understands that, yes, that's wonderful theory. But in order to make that money passively, you have to do things like maintain your expenses, run the operation, answer tenant issues, deal with municipalities and do all of the things that comprise that aforementioned ecosystem that I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation yeah. so it's never so easy but the dream that sort of has been sold in crowdfunding out there and has been scaled extremely well by some of the leaders in the space is invest with us you're going to get your return it's going to be better than you're going to do in a CD or a treasury and that's how you're going to make money passively and you're going to be a landlord um, again there's nothing you know viably untrue about that or specifically rather untrue about that but the the notion that that is what represents passive income in real estate, it's very limiting when you look at sort of what product types are on offer. So you can go and you can buy into a portfolio of single family houses, but you're another cog in the wheel. That's not to say that to be part or invested in a larger operation, you're not going to inevitably be some level of cog, but you're not really going to get the exposure to what makes the wheel turn. And I think from our standpoint, we want to do two things that is different than the rest of the people in the industry. We want to show people what makes the wheel turn. We want to bring them into a lot of the proprietary processes, a lot of behind the scenes things that happen to really navigate, negotiate, make a deal, go through the process of raising the capital, fulfilling and subscribing a capital stack and closing the deal and then operating it. We wanna convey to people a real sense of ownership. And a lot of that has to do with some of the technology that we've been developing and are going to be rolling out hopefully in the next year, but stuff that makes people feel connected to it in a way that you would if it was your own singular piece of property and if you were the only person on the deed. The deeds sure. that we're buying have you know, hundreds and maybe even thousands of constituents behind it, so it's kind of hard to get and convey that sense of ownership. But the second thing that we think is definitely different that really people are not doing out there is, is that we are out to take down um, high value denomination and large scale and scope assets. We are not buying homes. We are not buying you know, two and three family garden apartments. Uh, the first asset that we are now about 60 days away from closing is a brand new construction institutional grade, 204 unit free market rental apartment building. And the way in which we acquired that asset opportunity uh, was by deploying a lot of the methodologies that we have used successfully in our careers to date. And that's being opportunistic it's looking at opportunities when the whole world is going in one direction we think about maybe going in the opposite direction uh and finding ourselves in positions through the cultivation of networks proprietary networks that we've spent our careers building and and really it's you know not fair to say we've spent our careers building these things we have but these are things that never stop you continue to cultivate these relationships as you go the minute you stop trying to cultivate new relationships in any dimension, you're, you're going you're gonna to find yourself hitting a brick wall. So we look at these things and think to ourselves, okay, we've made a deal that's wildly opportunistic here. How can we share that opportunity? How can we share the multiple that we anticipate this project to generate with as many people as possible? And then we sit back and we think to ourselves, on average, preceding generations, if you wanted to gain exposure to that level of, call it institutional asset class, you're going to buy a stock and a REIT, You're going to understand maybe by reading minutes of board meetings and things a little bit about what's going on but you're never going to really pierce that veil of what's going on inside of an individual asset right so we want to take that and we define that as high octane real estate large scale big acquisition big volume and we want to take the means and methodologies that have worked for us in our careers deploy them to the benefit of the entire organization all the constituents and members and then do it again and again and again and again, and as many times yeah. as we possibly can.
0: Do you find some of that detail that you intend to provide to your investors maybe a little overwhelming for them? Do you find it sort of an opportunity for them to then start nitpicking into every sort of minutia yeah, of what you do and how you absolutely. do it? Is that, is that a positive uh, thing or a negative thing?
1: So it's interesting because I think that anybody that lives today, you know, whether you're heavily immersed in social media or not, um, or you you know obsessively read Reddit like I do, um, you begin to see that you know the the craziest thing that exists in modern society is this real. I mean, unfortunately, we do find ourselves facing a lot. You know, sort of a mob mentality out there. Whether you fall on one side of the coin or the other, everybody goes to the extreme. But the reality is, is that we think that some of the most precious value in what we're doing is the fact that we can expose this to ever-expanding groups of people. So I like to tell people, we're not really just crowdfunding here, we are crowd-braining. And crowd-braining is, uh, it's my term, so that's proprietary. Nobody can use that unless <laughs> they give me credit for it. But um, but by crowd-braining, we are able to take that unknown person in a locale or geographic you know, area that we are not aware of, that we've never looked at, never thought about. And that person either can maybe draw attention to it, call our attention to it, and say, hey, you want, you know, good ROIs, you want good IRRs, you want great cap rates, check out my town. That is a huge, 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 huge point of insight that we want to continue to um, focus on and we want to scale and want more people to reach out to us because we, A, think that we can be helpful we think that we can perhaps give you know free advice, free direction. If you invest yeah. with us, we're going to give you our focus. We're going to give you our attention. But even in general, if you just want to you know kick the tires with us, we're happy to engage. But the other side of it is is that to be able to um, extract either positive or negative views from uh, ever expanding groups of people, this is priceless. And to us, you know, we're not out for. Uh, everybody to say, yeah, we totally blindly agree with you. And we think everything you're saying is correct. We would actually roundly welcome. And we do when people tell us, Hey, I think you're maybe looking at this wrong, maybe you should look at it a different way. It's the same concept as, you know, cultivating relationships constantly. If you stop doing that, you're stagnant, you die. If you believe that you know it all, and you really have no use for anybody else's opinion, or at least to listen to somebody else's opinion and ascertain whether or not it resonates, you're also going to die. So we think that there is just a lot of value um, in that. And when people come to us, and they tell us, you know, we don't think that this underwriting jives with what we think the expectations are, or we think you might not be giving enough credit to what income potential is on this. This is all stuff of tremendous value. And the more people that engage with us on that, the more valuable our company ultimately becomes, right. And that's something that we really feel very strongly about.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. super interesting. Um, Hussein, given uh, sort of your exposure to the industry, where have you taken Fund Rebel in terms of like, you know, types of properties, commercial, multifamily? You mentioned you're about to close on a, on a 200 plus unit um, multifamily property, but do you guys also do some of the other food groups in the industry?
1: So, um, from a standpoint of, of experience, Uh, Myself and the other co-founders, we have experience, thankfully, across the entire sort of spectrum. Um, I have spent a lot of my career in uh, residential development, in office development, management, and landlordship. Um, We have experience in hospitality. We have experience in retail. Um, Don't have as much experience in data center and industrial, all those extraordinary asset classes that we're very interested in learning more about and and we definitely think that you know in the future there is going to be a continued place for that asset those asset classes which have already proven themselves to occupy a very very strong outperforming uh ranking among the broader level of asset classes um but you know generally speaking we are involved in everything and and even prior to the founding of fun rebel uh myself and some of the other co-founders had uh become involved in a number of other ventures that we're actually either mid thrust on now or finishing up. Uh, We're building some condominium projects, we've assembled a lot of land, we are uh, entitling in order to do some large scale ground up rental multifamily assets. But um, for the purposes of fund rebel, we are singular fund per annum. So each annum, we open up a new fund. And that fund is focused on one specific narrow focus. We don't want people who are investing with us to feel like if they're going to invest their money with us, we're just going to go and you know spread it around to things that might not complement each other. Our first fund is a multifamily fund, opportunistic multifamily fund. And that means we could either buy like what we're buying new, a brand new asset where we're making a tremendous economic deal on it and have the opportunity to curate the, the management of it and buy out an entire operational expense ecosystem and put ourselves in a position to walk into a wonderful cap rate from day one, assuming our leasing projections and, and absorptions hold, or buy something that requires some work and go and uh, unlock the uh, the value add dimension of it and put CapEx into it. Um, but we don't want to go too far astray on an individual fund, because we want a uh, our investors to look at it and think that they're going to get some sort of economy of scale vis-a-vis the exposure, where if one is not gonna do so well, the business thesis of what underpins that fund is still going to allow for you know good operations to sort of permeate and, and take the entire thing forward, even if one perhaps doesn't do as well as we had hoped. Um, but on the other side of it, uh, there is also an economy of scale with respect to expense. So when you are buying only multifamily in specific uh, geographic targeted locations, there's the opportunity to really establish relationships on things like supply chain, third party vendors, and the rest of the human beings that, you know, really make it all happen. Uh, and being able to take that and put that, um, you know, and, and redeploy that to multiple assets within the same fund, we wanna be able to have that efficiency and effectiveness, be able to show our investors that we're stewarding their capital cautiously and uh, trying to extend each dollar as far as we possibly can and to deliver the yield that we're, we're setting out to, to deliver.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, given your perspective on the industry, and it sounds like you and your founders um, have a broad sort of um, operational ex- experience in the in the in the broader sort of commercial real estate scape, uh, You know, I'd be remiss sort of not to ask you. You know, how do you feel about twenty twenty four, and you know how twenty twenty three overall was for you guys?
1: Yeah. So twenty twenty three, I think you know, was a year where it's interesting because the capital markets are what really tell you how it's going to be in real estate you know you go out to your capital markets relationships whether they be for debt or for equity and depending on which product type people are pushing that tells you what what the market is so 2023 was a year of everybody will give you debt Nobody will give you equity. <laughs> and I think that that has a lot to do, obviously, with, you know, th- there's a lot of political headwinds that have a lot to do with that. There's uh, Fed policy in the United States that have a lot to do with that. We were in an unprecedented um, moment of a 12-month trajectory of rising interest rates that has not been seen in many previous administrations and decades past. And I think all of that, you know, brought it to a place where everybody's kind of afraid to pull the trigger, not looking at it from the standpoint of what um you know, what really is the right to move the wrong move? Nobody has that answer. So everybody errs on the side of ultra conservatism. And sure, we'll invest money, but we'll invest money through debt and we'll invest money through debt at high interest and with supreme clauses and crazy amounts of shackles and and all kinds of stuff. Now, um, you're beginning to see a small little break in the clouds. Uh, Once the Fed, you know, says something along the lines of, we're going to potentially see interest rate cuts happening next year. Everybody understands it's time to get off the sidelines now because the deals that everybody had thought was going to be the bottom, that bottom is not going to come or it's at least not going to come in the timeline that everybody had preconceived of. Uh, nobody can ever really tell is there going to be you know, a further bottom, I'm of the belief that every cycle and, and now in my career I've gone through three of them. So uh, I think that every cycle, professionals get a little smarter, They get a little more well-prepared to weather the storm and they get a little better geared to protect their assets. So if, you know, it would have taken a year to shake this out 20 years ago, now you're looking at like an extension timeframe and horizon that is going to allow people that may have assets, they're in trouble to hold on to those things for longer, restructure them, recapitalize them, wait for market landscape to change, be able to exit them and not have to, you know, fire sale. So I think that the psychology of people trying to enter the market is mo- is is mainly based on I'm going to pick up everything extremely cheap because nobody's going to be able to hold on to this. That may have been true in past cycles. I don't think it's true in these cycles anymore. I think people have gotten more resourceful, smarter, and are finding different ways of skinning the cat. So. 2023 was a year of, for from our perspective, we were very active. And I think that we were sort of alone in that. I mean, we're, we're deep in construction uh, on 150,000 square foot ground up building, buying new assets, continuing entitlement work and government engagement, continuing things like engineering and architectural on projects that we have in development, looking at new opportunities, tons and tons of deal flow but being very selective about what it is that we planned on doing. So for example, the asset that we're buying right now, we went uh, and were first introduced to that asset when the developer, owner, builder, uh, who's all the same person, was six and a half months into a uh, 14 month construction timeframe. And we recognized at that moment, if we can make an offer that we think is beneath the cost of replacement, if we had to go rebuild this building tomorrow, Could we do it at this price? And, and, you know, no, of course not. And we get this seller to say, okay, we'll make that deal because for me, it represents an off ramp and I've got other things that I want to do. And you guys want to come and take it over. We were able to to do that. And a lot of people looked at us and they're like, you know, why would you be buying something right now when you don't know where the capital markets are and you don't know where, you know, where anything is going to fall out? And sometimes taking that bet, but just to, you know, make a long winded thing a little bit more succinct um i think that 2023 was a moment where nobody really knew where it's going to go so they fell back on the most opportunistic and in some cases the most sort of predatory practices that they could and now um as we head into an election year anybody that you know sees the writing on the wall understands that you go into an election year this is going to be a moment where every single political body is going to pull out all the stops to juice the economy and create an environment where people think that there's opportunity again. Hopefully, we're not just thinking it. Hopefully, there is opportunity. But that's going to be the moment where people are going to be scrambling. So I think 2024 is going to be a wild year. I think that there's going to be a return of a lot of capital that was on the sidelines. I think that there's going to be a lot more aggressive um offerings in terms of how people want to put together deals and how uh, people that are financing deals are putting them together. We're seeing it just in the last three weeks in the last three weeks we've gone from um, you know call it like you know two or three expressions of inquiry for serious capital placement a week to a dozen. and all of a sudden you know when you tell people we don't like your terms, now they're like, well, what do you want? <laughs> and maybe we can do that and then they are. so you know psychology, like anything else in life is a big, big part of all this. And um, I think that, you know, generally speaking, how human psychology interacts with the world at large and where people see the light and direction they wanna go to, that's the way that it's gonna go. And for our purposes and the purposes of this industry and this discussion, I think 2024 is gonna be a wild year. And that's our expectation. We're gonna see a lot of much more aggressive deal-making than we have in the last two years. Uh, I think office, at least in the majority of the municipal landscapes, major metropolitan areas in in the United States, is still going to be a challenge. Uh, There's just not really today a lot of inducement for people to go and reoccupy that space. Um, Certainly not at metrics that a lot of landlords had their CMBS values out there at. So you will see some hands changing on commercial for sure. Whether it goes back to being commercial or things get repurposed, you're probably going to see a little bit of both. Uh, I'm also a big believer that the office environment as a societal norm is something that ebbs and flows with the generations. I think that uh, the specific generations of workforce that has been uh, sort of mandated to be in the office, the moment that, you know, we're, we're we're the snow day generation. So, the minute that the biggest snow day ever was announced, why would anybody ever want to go back to school when we could just be on Zoom? Um, But I think that the next generations that are coming up, they're going to go through the college uh, experience. They're going to go through their own, you know, societal structural building experience where they're trying to find their own way and they're going to want to have that camaraderie and, you know, dynamic collaboration opportunities with people in real life. So, you're never going to see a total dissolution of office as as a singular asset uh, area, but it's gonna change and it's gonna reset and whoever is controlling it is gonna be offering it at different metrics and you're gonna see offices fill back up, but not before a lot of hands changing. Multifamily is going to continue to be a bright spot uh, and a robust area, I think, because right now, even if interest rates come down on the home buying front, Home buying, unfortunately, is still out of reach for a lot of people. So we are a renter nation in this country. Um, And surprisingly, I see a little bit more of a resurgence in retail than we have seen in a long time. I think that the experiential side of what the earliest days of the pandemic took away also had... A psychological impact on people, and that is giving rise to a lot of opportunity for food and beverage operators, and retail experience, and pop-ups, and things of this nature. It all still exists; it just exists at different market metrics, and it all exists, um, you know, to service a different area of emerging psychology. I think, but you know, either way, twenty twenty four going to be a lot busier than twenty twenty three was. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, I think I think we're seeing sort of similar sort of signs uh, beginning to kind of. Um, emerge on the on the horizon a little bit. Um, so one question for you then is, you know, how does this change, you know, the you know trajectory of maybe y- y- your strategy or your tactics? You know, are you going to focus uh, more on fundraising because there might be more opportunities, or do you feel, um, you know, you have enough funds? It's more sort of seeking those opportunities. You know, where where will your focus be? It's always going to be both for us.
1: Um, Seeking funds is uh, an evergreen dimension of the business. You cannot scale unless you seek funds. I think that where we are going to want to be focused is ensuring that we um, we keep maintaining and shoring up a lot of our institutional and high net worth relationships, but being able to scale the business in such a way that we can reach more and more of the average investor, because that average investor, we believe in the long term, is going to be um, really the lifeblood of our business. And we, you know, by saying average, I don't mean that in a a diminishing way of saying that. I mean that not everybody has a million dollar check to write for equity. Um, but if you have a thousand dollar check to write, you can get the same level of exposure para pursue that the million dollar check writer will get working with us. And that really is the thing that, you know, we're most proud of because why should your dollar be worth, less. Your dollar on a pro rata basis may be worth less than somebody that's writing a bigger check. But why should you get less exposure to pure equity and real equity in some of these assets and opportunities than somebody that just has a bigger checkbook gets? That's not fair. And we don't want that to be what the future looks like. We want the future to be a commingled arrangement, where people on all sides of uh, socio economic level can get this participation, they can learn, And they can, if we're, if we are lucky, something that they may learn from us may help inform something that helps them in their own life. And I think that making money is tremendous and that's, that's the business of business and that's what we have to do. But if we have the opportunity to help people gain something from their exposure to us that helps them within their own life, I can't really see a better value coming out of all of this than that. Uh, No matter what, you know, we have to pay the bills and we have to pay the vendors and we have to pay the interest and we have to pay, but so it requires money to do that, but you know, once we get past that part of it and people look at us and think, well, maybe I can do this too, or maybe in my town, I can find an opportunity for myself and put together friends and family and do something like this would be tremendous. This would be, this would be something that we would be extremely proud of. And it's a, a core part of what we believe our mission to be.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned a, a little bit about what you think uh, the industry may experience over the next you know year or so. Um, what does that mean for you guys? You know, have you guys also uh, had to rethink uh, some of the trajectories and goals that you've set maybe a couple of years ago, given kind of where we are today? Tell us a little bit about that thought process.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, we thought, uh, you know, two years into it, we'd be going public and ringing the bell on the NASDAQ. Um, no, I mean, of course, you know, you, you set out with a startup and you take into consideration all the factors that, you know, could go right, could go wrong. You think about best case scenarios, worst case scenarios, but then really it's just day by day. So, you know, we look to the giants of American industry and American businesses and companies and try to take away some of the baseline principles that they have taken. And I think that really like the simplest one, which is, uh, and everybody loves to quote, you know, Steve Jobs, but the reality is, is that Jobs had a methodology in the way he ran Apple where, when I read about it, to me, many years ago, when he first passed away, when he, when he passed away, excuse me, you can take away first, he only died once, when he <laughs> passed away, um, you know, and his, his biography came out and I read in it that every Thursday, I think it was, there was a, a team meeting, a, you know, top executive meeting where they just ran down the entire business, front to back, end to end, everything. Nothing was left off the table. That was every week. And I think that for us, it's a lot of that same sort of approach. Every week, every day, really, we're running down the business and we're understanding what is working and what is not working. From from an asset target standpoint and from a strategy standpoint, um, my role in the company is as chief strategy officer. So I encumber myself a lot with what the strategy of the business is going to be and, and what makes sense for us to pursue. Um, to keep it super simple, it's going to be the pursuit of whatever opportunities, um, it's going to be the pursuit of whatever opportunities are there that are going to create the greatest yield for our investors. It's going to be the pursuit of opportunities that allow us to capture um, a lot of ground for, you know not as much capital deployment, which is I think nothing special. everybody does that. but put ourselves in a position where we can do everything we can to fulfill, the mission that we have set out to fulfill. And um, I think that, you know, if you ask me right at this moment, is that in this asset class or that asset class? I couldn't tell you, but uh, I would say it's a general rule of thumb that we greatly believe in that multifamily is, uh, of all the asset classes, going to be the one asset class that continues to be a bright spot. How much you're going to get on cap rates, what are you going to get on your total ROIs, that will change from year to year. Sure. But uh, no matter what, that is the most financeable asset class. It's the most in demand asset class and short of a, a large scale national revolution. I don't really see that changing too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Let's hope there is no national revolution, uh, Hussein. <laughs> that we would really help, help uh, <laughs> uh, we, not just industry, really but all of us.
1: <laughs> all of us.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. As you look back, um, I'm always curious and I ask this question, you know, of all our guests is, you know, what are some of the biggest lessons learned, um, you know, both from founding the company, but also from kind of, you know, working through the last couple of years in this in this environment? Um, I would love to hear, you know, what would you do differently if you have an opportunity to do so? Um,
1: I think that that's uh you know, it's obviously a a wide open question. I I think there's plenty of things every day that we would do differently and plenty of things every day that are validated that we would do the same. Um, From a lessons learned standpoint, you know, if I told you that we actually learned the lesson about it, then we would never get any deals done. But, you know, have all the money that you need before you go into a deal. That's a great lesson to learn. But at the same time, Sometimes there are opportunities that are so good, you have to take on the opportunity and say, I'm going to go and subscribe the capital to it after I've already locked up the opportunity. So it's like two ways you can get burned doing that, or you can be successful doing that. Um, I think that a lot of lessons over the course of my career have all largely revolved around how we sort of assign value to different members of the ecosystem. And I don't mean within the company, and I don't mean the investors. I mean, just the, the broader spectrum of people that we work with um, and that everybody in this industry has to work with. You have to work with an entire village of people to successfully execute any project. It doesn't matter what it is. So um, more so than anything else, you can get caught into a mindset when things are moving really fast that people, you know, certain people matter more than others. But the truth of the matter is, and it's a very hard thing to to really capture and hold on to, everybody really matters in these things. And the person that you may think doesn't hold the most sway can turn around and right at the moment of sort of consummation, be the person that holds everything up because you didn't maybe give them the right attention or accord them the right amount of time to sort of understand what's going through their head and how that either helps you or hurts you. So I think that, you know, lessons, real lessons learned always revolve around interactivity with other people. Uh, I think that, you know, sometimes we've proven ourselves dealing with people, right. Sometimes we've proven ourselves dealing with people where we could do better. And I don't mean that we, you know, are rude or horrible or violent or anything or vitriolic towards people, but just in general, understanding that it's, it's a living, breathing thing, really, for lack of a better term. And uh, I think that a big part of what we do and and the success of how we can achieve it is how we interact with each other. So that's a big part of it. Um, and, you know, something that has taken an entire career to really understand that in people management and how you deal with uh, members of your investor base, members of your supply chain, members of your workforce, this is all absolutely critical. And then, of course, the most important is how you deal with your capital relationships, your larger capital relationships. Sure. You want to continue to ensure that all of those people maintain confidence uh, in you and that you deliver what you say you can deliver. So, you know, I know that's kind of a roundabout way of answering that question, but um, more than anything, and then, you know, talking about specific opportunities and specific transactions that maybe didn't go as well as you had hoped, all of that, again, largely revolves around the quality of the human capital that is involved. If dollars are in a bank account and people are there to swing hammers chances are you've got the ingredients that you need to actually manifest a building or something. But if you have people who are involved who perhaps have ulterior motives, different agendas, different ways that they wanna skin the cat that are not aligned with what is good for the whole, then you're gonna find yourself potentially in a position where things are not gonna be as successful. Uh, And certainly in my career and my other co-founders and all of our careers, we've experienced that. So we all try to live and operate from the perspective of being very mission-focused, um, really, really focused on the execution more than anything else, and of course, getting to the best execution that we can get to for uh, our investors and for ourselves.
0: Wonderful, uh, Hussein. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. This has been very uh, informative, and uh, best of luck to Fund Rebel and you and next in the new year and, and forward. We'd love to hear kind of where you guys are in a couple of years, as, and uh, you know, do a follow up. Glad. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Really appreciate it. That was another episode of The Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers.